Good morning and welcome to the Culinary Historians of Chicago. May I ask how many people are here for the first time? Wow, thank, thanks for coming today. And I'm Scott Warner, I'm president of, of uh, this organization. And this today marks the kickoff of our 26th year in business. This is our first program for the year because we had to cancel last month due to the polar vortex. Of course, in hindsight, maybe we could have done a program last month on the history of ice cubes, but perhaps that would have been too chilling a topic. And we're here today to continue our historical march through food history, curing interest in Indian cuisine from its arrival in America to its rise in Chicago, presented by Dr. Colleen Sen, or Colleen, as I've been calling my fellow food writer for the more than 25 years I've known her. Um, Colleen has probably talked to our group more than any other speaker. Do you, do you know how many times? Yeah. Yeah, at least, at least six or seven times. And she's authored a number of books, a number of books on Indian food and food history. And Colleen is always turning over a new curry leaf when it comes to her area of expertise. Colleen was also one of the editors of the Chicago Food Encyclopedia, along with our President Emeritus, Dr. Bruce Craig, and Carol Haddix, former food editor of the Chicago Tribune. And so, Colleen, would you come on down and dish out your latest take on Indian food? Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott, and culinary historians for inviting me back. I told Scott I had kind of a, a talk prepared, and that if he needed a, a speaker, you know, for some fill-in, I'm available. So um, I want to. I'm happy I can do this. You're you're no fill-in. You're a main course. I'm really happy to see all such a, a lot of people. I thought there may be ten or twelve, because Indian food really hasn't been a major uh, subject of interest. Um, in, in the United States, really, and, and in Chicago. Um, every year, some magazine says this is going to be the year of Indian food, and it never is. Let's hope that this year um, we have some new restaurants coming that will you know, broaden the, um, the scope of what Indian food could be, and that interest will, um, will pick up. Um, and actually, the history of Indian food itself has been totally neglected. I know of at least two books on the history of Indian food and in, uh, Chinese food in America. There may be more. Nothing has been written about the history of Indian food in America. I really don't want to tackle it because it's such a big project. But um, but even in India, um, interest in food history is, is something that's just new. Um, I wrote a book, Feast and Fast, History of the Food in India, that was published in India, and it's become a bestseller, and I go all the time and things like that. So people there are finally looking at um, the history of their food. Uh, so it's kind of been a neglected uh, topic. Now, one thing that's really interesting I found, that the earliest Asian immigrants to U.S. were, and I use, I should just say, I use the Indi term India to mean kind of South Asia, because if we're talking about the past, India was, you know, what comprised Pakistan and Bangladesh. So it's really a short form for South Asians. So uh, I just want to make that clear. So the first South Asians, first Indians, came to the United States in the decade following the, the founding of the Jamestown colony, which is absolutely amazing when you think of it. These were the first Asians, maybe the first non-white uh, immigrants. And why did they come? Well, because in those days, India and the United States were sister colonies of, of Britain. So there was a lot of going back and forth. And what happened was um, people who made their fortune in India in the 17th century, and they're sometimes called the Nawabs, the Nababs, they made these, these people would go and they would make great fortunes and um, you have that, if you know Thackeray's Vanity Fair, uh, Joss, who Becky tries to snare, he's one of these rich nabobs. He went back to England and bought an estate, but some of them went to America, and they bought big estates in the colonies. And how much land you could get depended on how big your household was. So what they would do, they would bring servants, and in some case even slaves from, the, from, South, India, uh, from South Asia, with them, because the more they had, the more land they could get. And of course, living in India, they got used to Indian food. The, these first generation, the, they were kind of buccaneers. They were kind of um, rampant capitalists, but they really, um, they really got into the culture, unlike, unlike the later, um, in later Brits. 
So they would bring cooks with them. So probably the first Indian cooks were these people who came with these nabobs. Now, some of them were actually indentured, and they would run away. One of the slides I had showed you a picture of one of these runaway um, servants or slaves. Uh, they described him as an East India. He had long hair. There was a picture and everything like that. It was a, a poster, but um, unfortunately, I don't have it. And um, so what happened is eventually they intermarried, and a lot of them intermarried with the local um, indigenous people. And at, well, actually, at one point on the Chesapeake Bay, there were more, this is confusing, South Asians than there were indigenous. I won't even use the word Indians. It's too, it'll cause too much confusion. Um, so there were a lot there, and they intermarried, and then gradually they just, uh, they just disappeared. Uh, so there really isn't any trace of this um, early, um, early immigration. Now, as I said, there was a lot of going back and forth between Britain, India, America, and so the um, immigrants who came from Britain brought with them the popular cookbooks of the day, and these were things like, um, you know, uh, uh, Mrs. Beaton, um, and so on, and they all had curry recipes. So curry came uh, fairly e early to the colonies, and um, it, the first mention of a in local curry res recipe was an apple curry soup, and it was in the um, 18th century man manuscript of Catherine Moffat Whipple, who was born in 1734, and she was one of the signers, uh, wife of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And later, other American cookbooks like Mary Randolph's The Virginia Housewife, 1824, um, had a recipe for. Um, chicken curry after the Indian manner, uh, catfish curry. She had a curry powder, which um, had turmeric, coriander, cumin, and so on, all the spices. And then um, Eliza Leslie's best-selling Direction for Cookery uh, in its various branches, 1840, also had recipes for mulligatawny soup and curry. So curry came pretty early to the, um, to the colonies. Now, um, so there was a lot of trade going back and forth, and um, the East India Company, the Boston Tea Party really was involved the monopoly of the East India trade, the East India Company trade. Um, I'm not a historian, I won't get into that, but basically what happened in 1813, it, its monopoly ended. So there was a lot more trade going back and forth between India and, um, and America. And Boston's India Wharf opened in 1809, to accommodate ships from India and Calcutta. And in one day alone, nearly 80 ships from Calcutta landed in, in Boston. And, um, you and so chicken curry, curried veal, lobster curries became standard fare in Boston taverns in the 1820s and 1830s. And of course, you had India Wharf. And even today, I think in Boston, one of the streets is called India Street. Um, one of the most famous people of these uh, East India uh, who made their fortune, was Elihu Yale. And um, he made a fortune in India, and he endowed Yale College. And um, what's interesting that his endowment was mainly in the form of textiles, because Indian textiles, which were very fine, I mean, you could pass a whole scarf through a ring, um, were really, really valuable. And donating these to found the college really was uh, almost sufficient to do it. Um, another interesting um, development around 1833 was that they started shipping ice to India, including from uh, Massachusetts and from Walden Pound. And what happened, there was uh, an entrepreneur, um, I think his name was Root, who found a way of uh, freezing it, putting it in, um, in the holds of ship, because the ships would come empty, so you could fill it with ice put it in sawdust, take it back to India, and people would use it to, um, to cool their drinks. So this was just an amazing thing, this ice trade between, between New England and uh, India. And India really played a big part in the intellectual life of, of New England at that time. So um, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau, um, they became called transcendentalists because they, um, they emphasized on the transcendent nature of the spirit. They were very interested in um, Indian philosophy. They read the Bhagavad Gita. And um, there were a lot of plays that went on in Boston, set in India. There was a real Indian craze in Boston in the 1830s and 40s. And, um, and Thoreau has a very famous uh, statement. He said, um, 
I bathe my int at Walden Pond. I bathe my intellect in the stupendous and cosmogonal philosophy, the Bhagavad Gita, in comparison with which our modern world and its literature seem puny and trivial. And he marveled at the connection between the land of the Ganges and his Walden, which was shipping this ice to India. And of course, in 1868, uh, Walt Whitman wrote his famous poem, Passage to India, which gave the name to Forster's novel. And, um, and there was um, you know, just a lot of interest in the East Coast in this. And um, I mentioned earlier there were a lot of curry recipes. This continued in the, throughout the 19th century. There were a lot of cookbooks that were written um, uh, about curry. There was an article in the New York Times in 1887, Curry for the Turkey, which told you how to use your Thanksgiving uh, chicken, or your Thanksgiving turkey, um, into a curry instead of making the usual hash. Now, one of the more famous dishes was something called Country Captain Chicken, which was basically a, a chicken curry. Has anyone heard of Country Captain Chicken? Yeah, it, it became very famous in the South. And um, James Beard kind of took it up, and there was um, a lot of arguments about how it should be made. And the name, no one's quite sure. There's different explanations. It was supposed to have arisen in the port of Savannah when uh, one of these sea captains came and introduced it to the ladies and they started making it. But curry always has seemed to be kind of popular in the South. And you have these things like um, at um, you know church dinners you have curry chicken salad and my southern friends tell me that um, you know they uh, that they're very familiar with curry and made with ready-made curry powder. Um, and it was, of course, it has apple and celery as well. Um, let's see. But um, when we come back to actually how many people from India were in the U.S. Now, there really were very, very, very few, um, apart from the, those early things. And according to the 1900 census, there were only about 2,000 people of Indian heritage living in the United States. And they came from mainly two groups. Well, there, there's a couple of well, very interesting groups. And one are something called... Um, the Bengali Muslims. And um, what happened, Bengali, people from Bengal, which is in the Northeast, peddlers, came to America, oh, and came to America, and uh, they were selling these textiles. They were very popular among women, so they'd go all around and uh, sell these textiles. And their base was actually in New Orleans, in the, uh, how do you pronounce it, Treme neighborhood? So they were based there, and they would go all over. And what happened is they would start intermarrying with local um, African-American women. Some of them moved to New York, to Harlem, and there was a community of, they would marry both... Um, African-American and Puerto Rican women. And they opened quite a few restaurants. And I was talking to Dr. Lene about this. We were both at Columbia in the 60s. And there were a lot of these little restaurants around Columbia, which was near Harlem, that were run by these, um, these Bengali um, guys. And they would marry. They would open halal butcher shops. Somebody has written a book about this. And um, their descendants are still there today. Um, in, so it's one of the more interesting communities. Now, another um, interesting community and is, came from the um, Punjab, which is in the um, kind of northern India. These are the, the Sikhs you often see with the turbans and other people, and they were great farmers. So they settled on the um, west coast, and some of them were in Canada, and um, some of them, um, but they were driven by anti-Asian sentiment in Canada down to California. And they especially um, lived around Sacramento in the Imperial Valley. And they became very successful farmers. Now, there was a racial exclusion laws in place then. Um, in 1917, it ended immigration from, quote, non-whites. So many of these people married local Mexican women. And um, you had a new culture which became known as the Mexican Hindus. And their cuisine, and you know, Mexican and Indian cuisine really go together very well when you think about it. There's a lot of convergences. You have the bread, you have the beans, you have the spicy, you have the chilies. So there was this kind of hybrid cuisine created. Unfortunately, it's pretty much died out. Their descendants have kind of been absorbed into the mainstream. There used to be a restaurant that... Um, that serves something called Hindu pizza, um, but it's, uh, it, it's closed down. So it's kind of an interesting um, thing of history. And, but, um, and there's a book written on this, this community as well. Now, um, 
So let's go to the to kind of uh, the restaurant industry now, the Indian restaurant industry. And the very first Indian chef, and I think this guy is the first bad boy chef in America, regardless of uh, thing. His he was such an interesting character named Ranji Smile. This name doesn't sound like anything. I think it's invented. And he was really um, a great storyteller, a great um, PR guy like many chefs are. And he was brought to from London in 1899 by Louis Sherry, who was the big restaurateur in New York, to um, for his new restaurant to be the curry cook. And he was called King of the Curry Chefs by Reporters. And he became an overnight sensation uh, because he gave all kinds of interviews. And apparently he was a real ladies' man because women, apparently, Harper's Bazaar had a big article and said women went mad over him. And there, I had a couple of pictures of him. Um, he has, you know, he had a turban and he wore a white outfit and, um, you know, looked... Um, quite uh, impressive, and he'd go to the table and he'd serve people the rice individually. And he had all these stories about himself. He said he was the son of the emir of Afghanistan. There was no such person. Or he was a, he called himself a prince. He was friends with the Prince of Wales. Who He had all these wonderful stories that he wove. And he used to go around lecturing Americans on um, their poor dietary habits, which, of course, is not something new. And, um, I, you know, their ignorance of food, and they should eat a healthy diet. He, he really, he was always being interviewed. He was in New York Times and Harper's and things like that. But um, and, and but the problem was he, um, and we don't know much about his food. Um, the one menu I could find had some curries, papadums, which you know are those crispy things, bhajis, which are vegetables, and uh, Bombay duck, uh, which is a, a dried fish. Those are the only things we kind of know um, that he served. So, um, but what happened? He kind of, um, success went to his head, and he uh, got into a lot of trouble. First of all, he brought in illegal immigrants to work in his restaurant. So, again, nothing uh, very new. He claimed that he was a prince. He came from Montreal. He was a prince, and these were his household staff. And, but the immigration authorities weren't having anything about it, so that didn't work out. Then he would get involved in public brawls, and he would um, you know, be arrested. And because he was already such a figure in the press, the press, everything he did, they would go after. I mean, this is kind of the backs, backfire. When you want publicity, it's bad publicity, too. So he would periodically be arrested, and they'd say Prince Ranji's smile, Prince and thing, was um, locked up. And then he kept marrying younger and younger women. That's the other thing. So he went through about all American women. So he went through about three of them that I know of, because they would keep announcing his wedding. I think at one point um, he went upstate and opened a restaurant, but that didn't work. And finally, in 1913, with his last wife, he went back to India and um, he said he was going to, um, you know, I don't know what he said, he was going to open a restaurant in India, but we never heard anything more from him. But he's such a colorful character and really so modern, you know, 100 years ahead of his time by his publicity and his flair and his things like that. So, um, and, and, and his behavior, you know, he really was a bad boy chef. Um, in 1925, well, Indian, South Asian immigration was pretty much banned. Um, and so the country's Indian population remained pretty s small. So around um, 1930, there were only 3,000. And most of these people were in New York City. And, um, and many of them were students or sometimes religious people. So in 1913, um, Ceylon India Inn opened at, um, 40, on 49th Street. A decade later, a restaurant called The Raja opened on 44th West of Broadway. And by the night, end of the 1920s, there were maybe half a dozen Indian restaurants in New York City. But I don't think there was anything in Chicago at this time. And I don't think on the West Coast either. Um, so... Um, this was very exotic to Americans, um, Indian food. And um, the American contacts with India were limited by now. I mean, it wasn't like in the old days. And so they often, reporters would write these very um, kind of fantastic descriptions of what they had. So in 1941, some of the New York Times describes um, a, a visit to an unnamed restaurant where the almond-eyed Hindu chef in his wondrously round snowy turban smiles enigmatically. She could almost hear the muted sound music of the Song of India as she peered into the steaming cauldrons of strange spicy melange with their pungent perfumes filled with that rare oriental ragu that is called a curry. 
Curry sauce is described as a marvelous medley, incredibly involved for the average Occidental, made from tomato paste, green peppers, and between 20 and 40 spices. And um, the unnamed restaurant's menu included pink curry, some Java and Ceylon, Hawaiian chicken curry, and various other things, um, cashew nuts, papaya cubes, the true foods of occult India. Um, in 1952, the food writer um, Florence Borbeck, uh, Brobeck, who worked for the New York Times, published Cooking with Curry. And um, this was the first American book devoted entirely to curry. And, um, and she, again, she got, kind of writes, um, like, this was very much exotic to people. So she says that most cookbooks in the subject frighten the wits out of a plain American cook because they call for a multitude of pots, sieves, colanders, a mortar to grind exotic spices, strange fruits only available if you know a sailor who's due from the South Seas. And she says you also need a knowledge of Hindu, Indian dialects to translate Hindu weights and measures and the native words for spices. So she provides a bunch of me menus, but it includes Hawaiian, Algerian, Australian, New Zealand, Cantonese, Japanese, you name it, Turkish curry, as well as a few kind of quasi-Indian curries with names like Bombay, Calcutta, or Bengali curries. And with few exceptions, they all call for the use of ready-made curry powder. And in the back of this book, she conveniently tells me where you can buy it. So maybe some friend of hers has uh, got a curry powder. But, um, but at least it was kind of a start. Um, but really, what really made Indian food take off, I think, in New York was the 1964 World's Fair. And um, there was an Indian pavilion that um, really got enthusiastic. A very nice restaurant. I couldn't find a menu. I've been looking for one. And Clay, Craig Claiborne of the New York Times um, really liked it. He really praised its elegant design, the intoxicating politeness of the staff, and the excellence of the food, which he said was admirably spiced, but without the overpowering um, powering hotness that is sometimes ascribed, and I would say wrongly, to Indian cuisine. And, um, but he complained that it was hard to find a, a good Indian restaurant in Manhattan, but he did have praise for Gaylord's Restaurant. And Gaylord's Restaurant was a branch of a, a chain in Delhi. Actually, um, the third generation today owns, I, I met him when I was in Delhi recently, um, the Gaylords here is not associated with it at all. There was a branch that opened in, in Chicago on Clark Street, but that, and it, it was quite good actually, but um, the current one doesn't have any uh, link to it, but the name is very famous, so often these ethnic restaurants take the name of famous restaurants. So when it opened, he really liked that, and um, he especially liked their tandoori chicken, and I think they had maybe the first, um, uh, the first tandoor in the U.S., um, and then in 1974, Mother Joffrey published an invitation to Indian cookie, cookery, which Craig Claiborne called perhaps the best Indian cookbook in English. And 1980, Julie Sani published her best-selling Indian classical cookery. Now, I have to say, when my husband and I, who's Indian, came to Chicago, um, we, I don't even think, um, it, it was before 1974, so there weren't any American cookbooks. <coughs> So we used two cookbooks, <clears throat> and one of them I still think is the best Indian cookbook ever written. Modern Joffrey agrees, because there was an article um, somebody I know wrote on it, <clears throat> and it's by Mrs. Balbir Singh, and it's called Indian Cookery. And this book has gone through... Would you like some water? Hmm? Would you like some water? Yeah, I would, thanks. I, thank you, thanks. <clears throat> Indian Cookery, it's in about 40 editions. I, I bought a first edition from Australia, because I've gone just for show... Mrs. Balbir Singh, she lived in London for a while. She was a, a trained cook, and every middle-class housewife in Delhi took cooking classes for, from her. And the book is very complicated. She's been called the Julia Child of India. This is not a book for novices. There's a lot of steps, but it, it's really a good book. I mean, she really knows what she's doing. The other book we used was on the opposite extreme. It was called Viraswami's Indian Cookbook, and that was really basic. That was really quick and dirty. So we used that as well. But... Um, but I think the problem with Indian cooking and is that it, it, you, it, it has been too complicated. I mean, even modern Joffrey's books, there's so many spices. Who's going to go for one meal to buy it? I mean, I, it really needs to be simplified. And I think um, you really do need to use ready-made curry powder, ready-made gada masala. It's not going to take away from the dishes. We use it at home sometimes. Because otherwise, um, it'll always have this reputation of just being too complex for the average person. And now there's a couple of hot 
hot pot books, slow cooking books. Chandra Ram from Chicago wrote one. I hear Mata Joffrey's writing one. So that hopefully will um, include it too. Um, on the West Coast, oh, okay, the first Indian restaurant there was um, India House, which opened in 1847. And um, so... These early restaurants, often they had names like um, Bengal Lancers and Taj of India, and they kind of referenced the colonial experience of the British in India. So they would have pictures of tiger hunts, they would have um, pr you know, hunting prints, and they would feature a lot of curries, which was a word associated with the British. And um, the entrees would be served with rice and Major Gray's chutney. And... Um, and the menu would also include things like grilled steak uh, designed for mothers-in-law, that says, who accompanied the uh, more adventurous couple, and, um, and so on. So um, the waiters would wear kind of Indian garments to lend an air of authenticity. Um, in 1946, immigration laws la relaxed a little bit. And by 1965, um, they, they opened up completely. They ended the white oriented, European-oriented, and they opened it up on the basis of, um, of, of uh, qualifications. So this opened, the, there was no longer a, um, a preference for, for Europe. And so this opened the door to the first wave of the so-called brain drain. And around this time is when, um, when Indians started coming out. And in 1976, actually, all regional quotas were abolished. And um, so over the next decade, hundreds of thousands of Indian professionals immigrated to the U.S. And um, by 2005, 2.4 million people of South Asian origin, which includes Pakistan, Bangladesh, lived in the United States, and it's probably higher today. So now let me look at Chicago and talk a little bit about uh, Indian food in Chicago. So... Um, there wasn't much interest in Indian food, but what was actually what was interested was the Chicago Tribune in the early days that um, had articles on Indian food. And one of the writers was a guy named Sant Nihal Singh, and he was a prolific freelance writer. And he wrote for U.S., Indian, and um, British publications. And he had an article in 1909 in the Tribune called Dainty Dishes of the Hindu, and uh, uh, Hindu pleasing to American palates. And he describes and gives recipes for a number of dishes, including chutneys, a chicken curry, Indian breads, a meat pulao, uh, halwa, fried okra, and greens, and uh, pakora, vegetable fritters. And his re recipes are pretty good. They're not at all simplified. Now, another early writer in Indian food was Jane Eddington. That was the pen name of Carolyn Shaw Maddox, who was the food columnist for the Chicago Tribune from 1910 to 1930. And she was real interested in, uh, in curry and Indian food. And she'd go to London, where she experienced curries. And she'd come back, and um, she'd give um, a lot of interesting recipes for things like eggplant seed, for example, that people weren't eating that much in those days. She often included recipes for vegetarian um, readers, and this is the 1920s, um, and she said eggplant was a great substitute for meat. Um, and she, um, she wrote several articles, and today we're going to try one of her curries. Catherine has made an egg curry that comes from Jane Eddington. And, um, but her articles uh, still had these exotic titles, like um, curry and chutney with their fiery spices conjure up pictures of the glamorous orient, is the title of one article. And... Um, and one problem at that time was finding ingredients because there really weren't places you could buy Indian spices. So she called for substitutes such as lemon juice or sour apples for tamarind. And um, if you wonder why um, Western curries and Southern curries sometimes have apples, it was a substitute for tamarind, which is a, a very sour pod that um, wasn't available here. Well, um, the first Indian spices were actually sold in Conte de Savoia, which you know on Roosevelt. Um, they, when we came to Chicago in the 60s, that's where we would go for Indian spices. Um, and one of the people who supplied it was a guy named um, Sarjit Singh Sikhand. And um, he decided he was tired of, and I interviewed him just before he died, he was tired of su supplying spices to Conte Savoia. So he opened his own place at 2911. I think it was called Indian Gift. And um, the business really uh, boomed because by then Indians had started coming into 
um, Chicago and the U.S. So he opened Indian Gifts and Food at Belmont and Sheffield uh, a few years later. And in 1973, he opened a restaurant at the same location, and um, which served um, kebabs and a few South Indian dishes. And um, the, But the majority of the customers in his restaurant were Americans, he said, at that time, uh, many of whom were tasting Indian food for the first time. Um, <clears throat> A few years later, uh, in 1974, Patel Brothers opened their first store in a small uh, storefront at, at Devon and uh, Damon. This was for their wives, actually. Muffet and Tulsi, who we've known from those days, wanted something for, they had jobs, wanted something for their wives to do. So this was open part-time. Well, today, these guys are multi, multi-hundred millionaires. They own over 50 stores in the U.S. and Canada. The most recent one is in Schaumburg, you know, very up-to-date and modern, but they still work in their shop. Tulsi, who owns this, he, you see him in the Patel Brothers and Devon, the flagship, bagging groceries. So that's how you get to be very rich. You don't go to the uh, Riviera. You uh, keep working, and uh, I think it's very impressive. Um, so, um, so the stores, they do not sell fresh, they're vegetarians, um, like many of the Indians, they're, they're on Devon, they're from Gujarat, they're mainly vegetarian there, but they don't sell fresh meat or fish, but they do sell frozen um, meat dishes. Now, now of course, uh, the first uh, Indian restaurant in Chicago was the House of India that opened in 1963. Does anyone remember the House of India? On, yeah, on Wells Street. And... Um, no, it was originally at 2048 North Lincoln, then it moved to Wells uh, in 1965. The owner was another interesting character named Colonel Abdullah. Now, Colonel Abdullah claimed he had a degree in psychology from, I don't know, he, he claimed he went to my husband's university, which didn't ask for psychology. He claimed he was a colonel in the British Army, but we had friends that worked in his restaurant because he would hire students, and um, he was actually a, an African-American from Tallahassee, Florida. In one of the... <laughs> In one of the interviews, actually, for the Tribune, because he again gave a lot of interviews, he actually said that he was born in Tallahassee, Florida, to Indian parents, which would have been impossible in those days. But he was a great showman in any case. And um, <clears throat> and um, I, I'm, I can't remember much about the food. Um, and we only ate there once or twice. We had a friend that worked there. But um, one menu that was Indian Independence Day in 1968, and the Tribune described it, it featured rice pulao, lamb korma with pineapple, which is not authentic, a vegetarian curry, a sirloin of beef curry, a hot spike dish that the reporter noted was called pork vindaloo, and papadums, which reviewers wrote were prepared only for special parties. But of course now, the minute you go to an Indian restaurant, they give you these papadums. The restaurant uh, lasted only a couple of years, and then it became um, a museum and gift shop, and then it closed down in 1973. Now the next restaurant to open was Brothers, and this was a modest storefront on Balmont Avenue that opened in the late 60s, and it was owned by a guy named um, Bram Dixit and his wife, uh, the cook, and they were in partnership with this uh, unemployed white man and his wife, and that's where the name Brothers came from, and the food was pretty good. It was Indian home cooking, and the wife did the cooking. They had um, um, rogan josh, mutter paneer, samosas, chapatis, and uh, we liked it so much we contacted Kay Loring, who wrote for the Tribune then, and she went and reviewed it, and she acknowledged me that she says, Colleen Sen has recommended this restaurant, so she wrote a nice little um, review of it. Well, what happened to that restaurant? Well, there was a PR guy named Mohan Shlabani. Um, Mohan Shlabani, he liked this place, and he lured the Dixits away, and the poor partners, I guess, they were out in the street again, and he opened in 1969 a restaurant with Mrs. Dixit as the cook called Bengal Lancers. Now, does anyone remember Bengal Lancers? No, it was uh, very posh, actually. It was um, in an old mansion on the 2200 block of North Clark about a, above a French cafe called L'Auberge. And it was part of this trend to like glorify the Raj, and they had, um, you know, they served Pim's Cup, which is a very British Indian thing, and they had pictures of, you know, British soldiers in in red outfits and things like that. And um, the the dishes had names like Colonel Skinner's Curry Chicken, and um, the title, of course, comes from that famous movie starring. 
Gary Cooper Bengal Lancers, which is uh, on TV all the time. And uh, he now he gave tons of interviews. Now he was a PR guy, so naturally this was his thing. And um, so he claims he opened the restaurant because the only Indian food available, he said, was served at a Chinese Polynesian restaurant called Pango Pango, where University, where Roosevelt University now stands. Does anyone know this? I've never, I couldn't find anything about it. So, um, so he, there was a big article in the Chicago Tribune about him, huge page in it. Uh, so he describes, um, uh, he, someone says, is this an authentic Indian restaurant? So this is what he said. He said, was my restaurant authentic? No, it was not, ha ha. An authentic restaurant, Indian restaurant would be, I'd bring in two cows, people would sit on the floor eating with their hands, I would have to find 18 flies, waiter would be running around with bare feet, an authentic Indian restaurant would not be approved by the health department. I did not even open, I did not open Bengal Lancers for people looking for nirvana, perfection. I even serve a beef curry. Yes, beef, right, I am a half-baked Hindu. So, I mean, no Indian restaurant has, you know, people sitting in the floor and cows and, I mean, it was, I don't know where he got this from, but, you know, that, well, that was it. And he also opened a restaurant in Evanston called Upstairs Downstairs, which featured curry on the menu, and later he opened a restaurant in Winnetka called The Monastery, but there was no curry here because, Chitabani said, if I sold curry in Winnetka, I'd go broke. <laughs> and he closed it because he couldn't get a liquor license, and unfortunately, he died very young. He died for 45 of a heart attack, and uh, that was the end of these. Now, both um, Colonel Abdullah and uh, Mohan Chobani published cookbooks, and um, I bought copies of these, but the restaurant was pretty standard fare. I don't think it's their recipes at all. I think they probably got them from somewhere else, and, uh, you know, they're just uh, standard um, pretty much. Um, so the third Indian restaurant was Taj Mahal at 10 East Walton Street, which opened in 1972 by Bera Mirani, who was a journalism student. And the same year, we saw the opening of Gaylords in, at 678 North Clark. And as I said, that was a branch of the Indian chain, and it was pretty good. It featured tandoori specialties and had the first tandoor in Chicago. And um, by 1977, there were at least 10 Indian restaurants in Chicago, including the very upscale Khyber India at 30 East Walton. Um, in 1977, the Tribune did a roundup article on Indian restaurants in which the writer shows a total lack of familiarity with Indian food. He writes about somba, which I guess is sambar, dried peas and vegetables, dobi, a dish of yogurt, mint, and chili, I don't know what dobi is, and something called the probia's beef curry. And so I, I don't know what these are, but uh, it, obviously it wasn't uh, very familiar with it. Uh, in the suburbs... Um, Viceroy of India opened in Villa Park in the 1980s. The Sri Vegetarian Restaurant in Westmont, 1992, and uh, it still remains quite popular. Now, um, to go to the present day, Devon Avenue, um, as many Chicagoans know, was originally a Jewish street, and then in the 60s and early 70s it started changing. And um, Devon Avenue is what's called. Um, uh, What's the name of it? Um, a gateway community. So it's a place where immigrants come, and it's always changing. I mean, now um, Indians move there because the real estate was inexpensive, uh, it was convenient, um, and so it became a very Indian shopping center. But now most Indians, like all immigrants, have moved to the suburbs. Like the Korean has moved to Glenview. Indians have moved to Schaumburg, to Arlington Heights. And we went to this restaurant um, the other day. And it was this entire Indian shopping center in Schaumburg with Patel Brothers, with a restaurant, with sari shop, with jewelry. So this is what happens. And what's happening um, with Devon Avenue, it's really becoming more, um, I would say there's more Pakistanis, there's more uh, Af Afghans, and the food is changing. You have more halal butcher shops, you have more restaurants serving um, meat. And, you know, people, they call it Pakistani food, but, you know, the subcontinents existed for 5,000 years. And to say that 70 years is going to change food habits is, is not true. In, I mean, Pakistani food is both basically North Indian Muslim food. With So it, it really is a continuum. It's not that the border, across the border, the food suddenly changes. So they call many of these restaurants um, Indian Pakistani restaurants. Basically, this means they will serve meat if the spicing will be perhaps heavier. Um, and the 
there's really only, um, I think, three, four vegetarian restaurants left in Devon now. There's Woodlands, there's Mysore, um, there's Arya Bhavan, and then there's um, another one. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so they're really, that, that's kind of um, narrowing, and you have an expansion of this other kind of uh, food. So um, there's different categories of Indian restaurants. And um, one is just a standard Indian restaurant. And I have to say, these are dishes everybody knows. Um, samosa, sag paneer, um, chicken tandoori chicken, chicken butter chicken, chicken masala, halwa. I mean, it's the same old, same old, dal. I mean, what happened when people came over, this was the model that... Um, uh, there, there really wasn't a, a restaurant tradition in India. That, that's the, the thing. So restaurants, even in India, were kind of a new phenomenon. Restaurants in the sense that we mean it with a menu and you sit down and everything. So really in the 60s, the Gaylords and the quality chain kind of who came from um, North India kind of created this kind of menu. And this is the kind of menu we find on many Indian restaurants today. You also have another strain, which are the South Indian restaurants, which have dosa, sambar, idli, um, and that's like Woodlands and Mysore. But basically, um, this is the model that most Indian restaurants have followed. And frankly, I think I compare it to spaghetti and meatballs. You remember at one time, Italian restaurants, that's all they serve. You remember that wonderful restaurant, The Big Night? Um, it, so it hasn't evolved. And it's, it's very unfortunate because, um, I mean, you can't even really talk about Indian food. There's no such thing as Indian food. India has 1.1 billion people. It has eight religions. It has countless languages. You can, even talking about North and South makes no sense. You have regional, you have local, you have city. It's just hundreds of thousands of dishes. And we're limited here to about 40 or 50. So um, I, I think, I hope that changes. I think it will. But um, so, so you have this kind of standard fare that served at some of these restaurants. Um, but there's other kinds of restaurants as well. And one are these so-called dhabas. And dhabas are, this is a, in, in North India, this is like a place where truck drivers stop along the highway. And these are places where taxi drivers go. And um, they're, they're usually Muslim. Sometimes they have a little mosque. The menu's on a, um, a blackboard. The clientele tends to be Indian, Pakistani, and a lot of Africans, a lot of Somalis. And um, they're all over the city, and they're pretty good. I mean, one that we go to sometimes is Hyderabad House in Devon. There's two of them. One is a family style. The other is... Um, is, is more, um, you know, and they have cricket matches on, and uh, so they're kind of um, fun to go to. Another kind of restaurant that's becoming really popular, or I should say eating place, are sweet and snack shops. Now, Indians love to sweet. They love, they have the highest, middle class Indians have the highest per capita sugar consumption in the world. Don't forget, sugar refining was invented in India, so it has a very long tradition. So um, people would stop, um, like, for afternoon tea, and they'd have... They'd have um, crunchy things. They would have sweets. And um, you have several of these sh shops in Devon now. And if you go on the weekend, you can't even get in. They're just packed. One is Sukariya. The other is Tahura. And so I bought some of these snacks uh, today. I got them from a factory that makes them, um, that supplies to these places. So try them out. They're, they're, not, they're very um, kind of crunchy and salty, and they're, they're quite good. So that's another kind of category of restaurant. And those are, those are quite popular. Um, the, um, now, the other thing is that, um, as I said, I just came back from India, and what's going on there is so exciting, because you have so much interest in, um, first of all, things like farm-to-table, organic. Okay, we have that here. But people are really going back to their roots, and they're exploring... Um, ingredients that have been forgotten. They're looking at, like, chefs are using, like, tree, uh, leaves and twigs and things like that. Um, they're looking for old, what are called historic, great, ancient grains. So millets, millets used to be considered, you know, poor guy's food. Now they're becoming very fashionable. There's a millet festival. Chefs feel it, feature millet on their, rest, um, on their menus. Another interest is all the different regions of India. So in the cities, you can find food from places like Assam in the northeast, Nagaland, Bihar, Orissa. You can find all these things which you couldn't find 15, 20 years ago. So there's this great explosion of interest in this. And um, in, the in, in London, um, 
you know, of course, the Brits have this historic association with India, so it's not surprising. So you have a lot more of these local kind of, I will call, Indians call them ethnic restaurants, which is kind of funny because they're Indian, but they, what, by that, what they mean is not their own, um, not mainstream, kind of outside the mainstream. So you have these, and in, in London you have several Michelin-starred restaurants that are absolutely fabulous, like, um, uh, like um, oh my gosh, I've been to them too. Um, I think of it, but there's quite a few of these that are very lavish with wine lists, and the chefs kind of experiment, the beautiful presentation, and the chefs are experimenting. And in New York, you have a couple of these too now. You have this um, um, restaurant, India, um, oh my goodness, my memory is going. Um, I'll think of it. I, it's a very famous restaurant in Delhi, and the guy kind of brought molecular gastronomy and things, and then he opened a branch in. Uh, in, in any case, it's it's um, the chef is named uh, Mehotra. I remember his name. Hmm? Indian accent. That's it. Thank you. Indian accent. So they have a branch in New York. And then Chef Floyd Cardoz, he's doing some interesting things. And um, on the West Coast, there's a restaurant, Rue, and they're bringing, um, they're bringing um, uh, opening a restaurant here in Chicago. So I just hope there'd be a little bit more variety. I mean, I just think we need to expand the scope and not have uh, the same kind of food. Oh, there's another kind of restaurant which serves street food. Street food is very popular in India, too. And um, people... You know, now it's it's entering restaurants. Rest, you know, restaurants are like um, they're they're serving expensive versions of uh, like something that you'd pay twenty cents for in the street. It's five dollars, and people say, "What? What is this?" So like bail puri, which is kind of a mixture of um, you know various potato and spices and chickpea and things. And um, and in Chicago, we have a couple of places that um, serve the street food and um, hakabaka rolls and. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, and then the other day we went to a place which called Eggaholic, which was absolutely blew my mind. I had not had any of those dishes before in India or anywhere, and they were from West Coast, from Gujarat, and they were um, all had kind of um, egg in different ways, like kind of mashed up and raw and in curry, and it was absolutely um, amazing. It was so different, and uh, so like, maybe our egg curry today is uh, an homage to Eggaholic, I don't know. Um, so, um, so I just hope that um, you know there is more interest in Indian food. That um, you know it does get the place it deserves, and um, uh, that kind of um, concludes my remarks. Um, I did bring three books. I brought. A Guide to Indian Restaurant Menus, which I wrote ages ago, um, just to, if you go to an Indian restaurant, what to order and things like that. I brought my book, Curry, A Global History, and then I bought a book that I wrote ages ago, and I have a lot of copies, and I think it sells for 50 bucks on Amazon, and I'll sell it for 20 just because I need to clear out my library. <laughs> so so uh, thank you very much for listening, and I'd be happy to take questions. Yes, thank you. I mean, it's like saying, what is European food except times 10? I mean, one of the basic differences is the basic grain that's used. So North India, Pakistan tend to be basically bread wheat eaters. So the basic grain there would be bread. And you have all these wonderful breads. You have um, chapatis. You have rotis. You have all kinds of breads that are baked, are fried, are sautéed, um, just dozens of breads in North India. In Eastern Indian Bengal, uh, it's a basically a rice-based, rice is the basic grain, and it's very fish-oriented. Bengalis are very famous for their fish, and they like what we consider stinky fish, like carp. My husband's Bengali, but I, we neither was like this kind of, and they cook in mustard oil. Another difference is the cooking medium. Okay, so North India would probably be some kind of vegetable oil. Eastern India, Northeast India, it would be um, fish, mustard oil. In Western India, uh, traditionally they used um, uh, they used uh, gingoli oil. There, the breads would be um, traditionally were these grains like sorghum and um, millet. They're, but they're kind of being pushed. They were kind of being pushed out by wheat. Although now they're coming in a surgence. The Indians are not vegetarians. Only 35% of the country are vegetarians. This is one of these myths that all Indians. But it's very localized. So in Western India. Like 65% of Gujaratis are vegetarians. I think 70% of Punjabis are. But in Bengal, 
2%. In Kerala, 2%. So it varies all over. It varies by a lot of factors. So again, you can't generalize. And I mean, we say that um, they're vegetarians. South Indian, um, people think South Indians are vegetarians because all the restaurants are that serve Italy, they're vegetarian restaurants. This is kind of a historical fluke. It really doesn't reflect um, what most people eat. There was a famous temple called Udupi in Karnataka, and um, the chefs, the cook, temples, I should add that temples have kitchens, and even in Chicago, the uh, Hindu temple has a great kitchen that serves vegetarian food. If you're ever out there on the weekend, you can go there. Um, so um, the, the chefs at this temple were very famous, and they went and started opening these restaurants, called, sometimes called Udipi um, restaurants, and they served this food that was basically served in the temple, which was vegetarian. But um, so people think that's what you know South Indian food is. It really is just a, a fraction of it. Um, in Kerala, which is in the southeast, Kerala um, is about one third Muslim, one third Christian. So they eat a lot of beef, which of course Hindus don't eat. They eat pork. Um, the Christians eat pork. So the food there uh, is very coconut based. It's rice based. There's seafood. So really, it, it just depends on the region. It depends on the availability of food stuff, what's grown there. It depends on the religion of the people. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, and I mean, no restaurant can capture all of it, but there are a couple of Gujarati restaurants in Devon. I shouldn't, um, there's one called um, Suk Sukaria, Mr. Sukaria. We, we visited there, the culinary historians. We've done events there. He's wonderful. His family's been in the sweet business for 130 years and he's very hospitable. He serves Gujarati talis. Tali is the plate with the little bowls on it. So if you want to try Gujarati, and he even has a Jain tali. We did a Jain dinner. <laughs> Jains are a sect that, um, they're the strictest sect in the world. They don't eat, um, forget about meat. They don't eat onions, garlic. They don't eat root vegetables. They're not vegan, but they, they don't eat any of these things. But the food is quite good. So he has a, And then there's a place across the street called Annapurna, which the Patel brothers own. And it also serves a vegetarian Gujarati tali. So I would suggest trying that. That's something a little bit different. And I think um, there's another place that does too. If you like meat, try like Hyderabad House. Hyderabad House has, um, you know, meat dishes. So... Um, uh, so those are the places on Devon that I know. In the suburbs, there's a lot more restaurants um, now, and kind of the more fancy restaurants have moved to the suburbs because that's where the you know middle class Indians have moved. So um, you know, so I, that's I can't I could go on forever. I'm sorry, it's probably too much. Okay, yeah. Two questions about Indian food in Chicago, um, both kind of historic. So in India, there's certain regions that have been colonized or occupied by Portuguese. By British, by Do you have much knowledge or experience of, say, Goa, Portuguese influence Indian cooking and how that got exported or not to the States? But also the other question had to do with Kerala specifically. There's no Kerala restaurants in Chicago. And I have a theory that one of the reasons being that many of the people from Kerala were doctors and educated people and that they chose not to go into the restaurant business because it's not that's a really interesting observation. I think you're probably right about that. Um, and uh, the question, you know, who opens who opens restaurants? Um, now, being a chef in okay, thirty years ago, there was you were there weren't chefs in India. There were cooks, and cooks were like domestic servants. Now, chefs are a big deal in India, and you have dozens of these culinary colleges. People are like here are spending a lot of money to send their kids to culinary school. You have the government hospitality uh, institutes. So you have a bunch of trained chefs that are now opening restaurants. In the old days, some guy would have a sari shop. He'd say, let's open a restaurant. You know, there was a certain uh, prestige associated to having a restaurant, but he wasn't really a food person. So this is changing. I mean, one restaurant we like is uh, Indian Harvest out in... Um, I think near Naperville, and the owner, he's one of these guys that went to culinary school, and so, I mean, it, it's like a chef-based chef restaurant. So I think you're right. Of course, now the Thais, Thais tend to be professional, and they opened a lot of restaurants. So I don't know why that is. That's a kind of an anomaly. Kerala, Kerala, it's pronounced Kerala. Yeah, no, there, yeah, there was a restaurant, didn't open very long. There's no go-in restaurant here either, and I don't think there's any in New York. Maybe might be one in New York. 
um, we don't have any West Indian restaurants here. I mean, there's a great Indian diaspora of Indian food in Trinidad, all over the world. We don't have any of that here either. It's a wonderful, I love Trinidadian food, yeah. No, you don't. I've been to Trinidad a few times, and I, in my book, I have a whole section on uh, the food of the diaspora, because I think it's really interesting what, what, how it's funded. Yeah? You mentioned mustard oil. If you look in the grocery stores, in the, in the grocery store, or even diverse grocery stores, on the aisle, on the aisle of the oil, they sell little bottles of mustard oil. But if you actually read the bottle, it says not for human consumption. <laughs> no, it, that's a, that's it is for human consumption, and why they have that I don't know. There's some legal issue. We looked into that because we use it sometimes. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, I noticed that uh, a lot of um, buffets have closed on Devon Avenue. Do you know which are the remaining? I don't. I, I live near Devon, but we hardly, we just go there to shop. So I think they've probably moved to the suburbs again. The suburbs are where a lot of restaurants moved. I, I don't know. Okay, everyone per, repeat after me. Turmeric. It's not turmeric, and I'm not singling you out. Every time I give a talk, it's turmeric. There's an R in there. I don't know where this turmeric came from, and it, uh, it's become a bugaboo, so turmeric. Okay, curry powder is a blend of spices. It always has turmeric in it. Turmeric is what gives it the yellow color. It can have other components as well. It can have um, cumin seed. It can have coriander. It can have chili powder. Um, it can have about 10 or 12 different ingredients. It just depends on what the brand is. Um, there's nothing wrong with using curry powder. I mean, there's this idea that you have to get spices and grind them, but, you know, no one would make anything. So we use curry powder at home. But isn't curry powder a British invention? Yeah, it is, but, you know. <laughs> well, I guess what I'm asking. No, I would use that. That's a good idea, actually. Yeah, one can't be a... Be a and, you know, it's interesting. There's a big... I wrote a book about turmeric, and there's a big craze. Everyone thinks turmeric is healthy. Okay, the only... Okay, the active ingredient is called curcumin, and it does have anti-inflammatory properties. If you go on PubMed, there's thousands of articles on it. The only way turmeric is effective is if you sauté it with black pepper, and the ratio has to be four parts black pepper to one part. If you're putting it in milk or water, it's not going to do you any good. So that's, uh, that's truth. That's from a, a guy at, um, a, a professor at um, the cancer center in uh, Houston. It, 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 it activate, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I visited uh, Port of Spain back in the 70s, and that's where I ran into, you, you reminded me of this when you mentioned the fast food in India, and there were roti stands all over the place. The first one I saw it was kind of amusing because somebody had lost the eye and it had fallen off, and so the sign read, Oh, they're wonderful. Yeah, you could get, uh, they had potato ones and they had chicken, and, so you could get vegetarian or something if need. Do they have that in India, or is that just the, the folks from India that wound up in Trinidad that created this? It's like, it's like a taco. Yeah, no, it doesn't exist in India. It's a Trinidadian thing, and uh, uh, there's an Indian dish called doubles that's kind of similar to that. Um, it's like bread with chickpeas in it. But um, uh, And I wish there were a roti shop in... Um, there's tons of them in Toronto. I mean, Toronto's got wonderful Caribbean food, but Chicago, not so much. Good question. Well, there were two... Um, uh, they, they were brought by the Portuguese, probably in the 16th century, probably around 1550 or so. And there were two things that were used for spicing. One is black pepper, which, of course, we have. And the other is something called long pepper. And long pepper is kind of a... Well, it, it's long and skinny and bumpy. And um, you can buy, I bought some in Devon once, it was as an Ayurvedic remedy, but um, yeah, that's what they use. But chilies grow practically wild, so once they came in, they, it was so easy for them to replace, you know, what the existing sources of spices. Yeah, that's right, tomatoes replace tamarind and things like that. Thank you, excellent presentation. Thank you. Indian food for India, I should say. A couple of things I wanted to ask you was that, when I came to Chicago in 1986, there were two restaurants. I mean, I, I agree with you, most of the Indian food sold in Indian restaurants is really very poor in quality. And that's why I probably They're not really trained chefs. You know, they work in one restaurant and they drive with them. 
this Bombay Palace was there. They had excellent Indian schools. They were open for a while. They were on Walton Street, right downtown. And that's one place I used to enjoy eating. And the second was Moti Mahal on Belmont. They had some of the best in yes. the area. And I think the owners both passed away. And I think those are two places that I just least as an Indian enjoyed eating. No, Moti Mahal. I think it was. I think it was this guy that I mentioned uh, that died. I think he. I think that was the name of his little restaurant. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, it was pretty good actually. You're right. Yeah, and, and that uh, close too. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned about the Sikhs coming to the West Coast. So uh, it's a very strange history. I actually visiting my cousin at UC Davis, and they had an exhibit at the library showing all these Sikh men with. Hispanic white, oh, really? So what happened really is that as non-whites, you could not own land. So all these men who were farmers would marry Mexican women, and they were classified as whites then. And so you could own land through your wife, but not yourself directly. And there are all these pictures in local yeah. newspapers that they were put together. So that's how you know that culture came about because they could not own land. And the first Indian temple actually is made on the land donated by white women because again Indians are not allowed to own land. So I thought we'll this for Yeah, I wish I had a picture. I had a picture of them. It was very interesting. Yeah. So um yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, could, could you repeat that? Uh, is it, there ever be a McDonald's Indian fast food chain? Even in India, there aren't that many. Um, I, it's kind of interesting. I was looking the other day. I was writing something, and I wanted to see if there were chains in India that serve fast food, nationwide chains. And there really, there really weren't. There certainly could be. And I mean, it's not that even that the food in this restaurants. I don't want to say it's bad. It's not bad food. It's just that it's so limited. You know. I mean, it can be a very good example of what it is. But there's so much more that I wish that. I mean. Actually, there's a place in um, on Golf Road that serves sweet is street food. It's a street food outlet, and they have a lot of because some of these foods would really lend themselves well to that. And this is kind of I guess street food is kind of the equivalent of fast food chains in a way, and it could be really good, you know. Yeah. Um, really apologize for missing. <laughs> You're talking about definitely listen to the podcast, but. Um, I found some interesting information last night bearing on the first uh, Indian restaurants in Chicago. You didn't mention the, anything about Ahmad Jamal, did you? No, I didn't know about that. So, yeah, this is so. You mean the jazz musician? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. So the House of India is usually credited being. Mm -hmm, mm hmm And that opened, I believe, in '63. This is all. Anyway, um, I think it was 63. Yeah, yeah. Um, it turns out Ahmed Jamal opened his like dream sort of nightclub um, over a year earlier. Really? Um, 13th in Michigan. Really? Um, Alhambra. There's actually a really great uh, uh, album um, live at the Alhambra. Um, and it turned out he had three chefs, one American, one um, Lebanese and one from Bengal. Really? Where, where did you find all this? Uh, in the Chicago Defender. Oh, wow. Um, and actually, I started writing uh, Ahmad Jamal a letter last night, and I decided I had to get to sleep. Oh, yeah, yeah. I totally missed it. And it turns out what's really interesting, um, it all, the restaurant only lasted like a year, just over a year. Um, probably partly because he refused to serve alcohol. Um, and for a nightclub in Chicago in the early 60s, that you know, yeah. wasn't too successful. Um, but after it closed, it reopened, um, and it was called Taj Mahal. Um, and that was still before, there were two, before there were two Taj Mahals in Chicago, restaurants in Chicago. But this was the first, and it was run by Colonel, what's his name? Abdullah? Abdullah, yeah. Um, and uh, well, before, um, before his other restaurants. Huh. And, 
That is that online? Is the Chicago Defender online? Yeah. Oh, good. Thank you. I'll show you. I, I downloaded. A oh, great. Ad, which is really interesting. Um, you know, it talks about um, Colonel Abdullah. He he was smart enough to serve alcohol. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. No, it's great to, to learn more. I mean, this is such an interesting topic, and really, this is kind of a pioneering effort, so I'm so happy to get some input. Okay, so um, any more questions? And uh, Oh, go ahead, yeah. So what's your thoughts on new Indian cuisine in Chicago, like mango pickle and edgewater? Well, mango pickle's very nice. I mean, uh, we go there a lot. We know the owners very well. They have delicious cocktails, and you know, I think the thing that really goes well with Indian food are cocktails. I don't think it's beer. I think that's something the Brits. I don't think it's wine. Pairing wine is so difficult. I had the most wonderful meal in, in Delhi a couple of years ago um, at the Roseate Hotel, and it was. I didn't know this was what the meal was going to be. Every course was paired with a diff different a cocktail made from a different liquor. So they served the first one, and I didn't know that the whole meal was going to be like that. So then I had to kind of just take little sips, but it was so good, and it matched so beautifully. And I think this is really what Indian restaurants should do. And Mango Pickle, I mean, they have, um, they have a consultant from France who actually I know uh, from India, and they, um, and they try to you know, introduce new dishes on their things like lamb dishes, but um, their bar is just excellent, and I hope other restaurants follow that. Yeah. Well, the food that I think is the real haute cuisine of India is Kashmiri food. It's got a very, um, it, it's 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 very um, a lot of very rich, um, a lot of nuts, a lot of spices, very labor-intensive, but there's no Kashmiri restaurants. I, even, even in India, there's only a couple in Delhi. I would love to, and they have a, a, a feast called the Vazvan, which is like 24 courses, and it goes on all night, and uh, they're all meat, you know, and there's like a lot of lamb and goat and things. I would love a Kashmiri restaurant, but uh, that's not going to happen. Okay, well, if that's all, well, thank you very much for listening, and um, if you have any more questions, let me know. Oh, the food. Okay, okay. Just a sec. The food. Um, Catherine has made a, a, an egg curry, which is ma made from one of these um, Jane Eddington recipes. And I bought some snacks. And there's um, the round snacks, which I just love, are called Maitri. Maitri, and they're they're a little bit spicy, but they're so great with tea. I always have it in the morning. And the others are kind of crunchy and not spicy at all. So um, so, uh, and I think there's rice as well. So just um, just enjoy it. Thank you.